Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I've shared with you that my mind keeps wanting to go on because I don't want you getting bored with it. And I don't want to get bored with it, but how can we get bored with God's Word? Then I was listening to a CD of Keith Moore the other day and found out he spends almost a year on the subject. And so uh, I don't feel so bad. We're not going to spend a year on this. But one of the things that, that I really sensed the Holy Spirit showing me in the beginning of the year of how critical these 16 verses are these first 16 verses are of Ephesians chapter 4, is that many things, the sense I have is he wanted to take many things kind of off of, this is like the spine of what we're going to study this year, but there's many things that he's going to take us off of it. And yesterday as I was meditating back over, I mean I've had these scriptures laid out for weeks now, and, and as I was going back over them, I began to see things I've never seen before. And I've known these scriptures by heart. I mean I've taught these scriptures for years. And the Spirit of God began to open my eyes to something. And what I believe we're going to hear this morning that the Spirit of God wants to share with us may well be one of the most important things I've ever taught because it applies to where people are right now. And that's, of course, the Word of God always does that. But I've noticed over the last few weeks especially, people coming to me either in casual conversations or in my office uh, and saying that the pressures that's upon them right now is more than they've ever dealt with before. There's pressure on them, maybe financially, pressure on them in relationships, pressure on them health-wise. And the devil doesn't play fair. He doesn't give you what he thinks you can handle. He wants to try to give you more than you think you can handle. But the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that God will not allow you to... 1 Corinthians 5.10 that God will not allow you to go through something unless he's already determined that you're able to handle it. And, of course, we don't handle it in our strength. We handle it in his strength. Paul says, I've learned to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that's where many people are. I have dealt with pressure lately. Pressure that just seems like it's stacked up taking a number to come at me. And in the process, what I'm doing is I'm learning some things that is causing me to be stronger and causing me to grow. So having said that, I want to read some of these scriptures to you because they'll, they apply to where we are, because we're still talking about growing up, because that's what this passage is all about. Paul gives some background here. We're going to pick up, um, uh, well, let's pick up in verse 11. He gave some to be apostles, some of the gifts of grace he gave to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. We've gone through that and studied all that. For the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's God's goal for your life, is that you and I grow and mature, and that the church together grows and mature, till we literally talk like Him, think like Him, and act like Christ. But to do that, look what verse 14 says, and this is what we've been looking at, that we should no longer be children, and we've talked about what it means to be childish, it's basically selfish, self-centered, and we talked about a number of other things that kind of come off of that. And that's what I want to look at again today, but there's another aspect of this we're going to focus in on, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. This, is, this language is very important, so we'll make sure you listen to this and hear it carefully. Tossed to and fro. Don't be children anymore, because this is what how children act. They're tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. So Paul is saying here that a child is easily blown about by other circumstances. Child gets easily distracted. We talked about the fact that you tell a child, you tell your child, Johnny, go clean up your room. And they mar- Johnny marches into the room, and something that should take 20 minutes, you go in an hour later, and his toys are still all over the floor because he's gotten interest in something he was picking up. And he got distracted by it, and now he's playing with it. Not malicious, not intentionally disobeying you, he just got distracted because children are easily distracted, and we've talked about that before. But there's another aspect of being blown to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. To be blown to and fro, and we're going to see this in two other scriptures, means you're not in control. Something's controlling you. Something's moving you. You've determined to do something, and now some circumstance 
in this case, spiritually, some teachings come along to blow you off course. That meant you were not mature enough to stay on course when opposition came against you. And I mentioned at the beginning this, this, today that many of you right now are dealing with pressures, pressures in your life. And they'll mount up from different areas and, and they'll hit you all at once sometimes. They'll seem to come out of nowhere, but of course they don't come out of nowhere. They're weapons of the enemy. And the Bible says they come to test your faith. And so one of the signs of immaturity, and, and it's not a condemnation, it's not saying you're, you're a little baby. What it's saying is I need to grow. One of the signs that I need to grow and mature is when things easily move me. Circumstances easily move me. And maybe it's not easily, but they move me off course. The Apostle Paul is a good example of a mature Christian because all kinds of things came at him from outside and from within. He went into, one, he went into a place called, I think it was Derby, where he went in to preach the gospel. And they loved it so much they picked up stones and stoned him took him outside, threw rocks at him, and left him for dead. Either he was dead or he was so close to it that they couldn't tell that he wasn't dead. And his followers gathered around him and he was raised up. And where did he go? Right back into the city. Why? Because his mission was to preach the gospel. Nothing stopped him. Nothing distracted him. Nothing pulled him off course. Now, he didn't get there overnight. We look at these, 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 these icons of spiritual growth. He didn't get there overnight. He spent 15 years in training before he began the ministry. He didn't just go right from the road to Damascus out into Antioch and Pisidia and in Asia Minor start preaching the gospel. 15 years in training. The time God spends training you and preparing you is so crucial because he deals with the inside things. And there's no substitute for time with that. So we see one of the signs of one of the needs to grow is when circumstances of life easily move me off course. What's the course? God's word. What's the course? God's purpose for my life. What's the course? Coming to church. What's the course? Praying. What's the course? The things I know to do that are right that I get easily distracted from. That means I need to grow and mature in that area. So we began to look at, the Bible tells us how we grow. So turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 2. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Having been born again by what? In, by, by, by incorruptible seed, through the word of God. So you were born again by receiving the word of God, which is incorruptible. That means it doesn't die, it doesn't decay. The word of God which lives and abides forever. That's how you were born again. Verse 24 gives you a comparison. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. And what's the, what is it about grass? It withers, and the flower of it falls away. Verse 25, But the word of the Lord endures forever. That's very important to us. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we learn that not only are we born again, made alive unto God, and that's a supernatural event. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You are dead in your sins and transgressions, walking according to the course of this world among the sons of disobedience. But God, verse 4 says, who is rich in mercy in order to satisfy the desire of your heart, made you alive together with Christ Jesus. 
So you were dead, spiritually dead to God. And God, through the word of God, made you alive unto him. You were born again. But Peter's telling us that's the beginning of the process. Because now that you're born again, you're a baby. You may be 60 years old in your physical body, but you're a baby in Christ. And as a baby in your natural body, a baby in Christ, you need to begin to grow. And we grow by receiving the food. Just as your body grows by receiving food, your spiritual being grows by receiving food, but your spirit being grows by the food of the Word of God. And he talks here about a baby receives the milk of the Word. And then we looked over in Hebrews chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, Paul, the, the writer of Hebrews says that, that, that you know, I will, there's things I want to teach you, but you're not able to bear them now because you're dull of hearing. The next verse he says, you ought by now, you ought to be teachers. In other words, you've been a Christian long enough that by now you should be instructing others. But you can't do that yet. I've got to go back and give you the milk of the word whereby now now you should be receiving, the, the New King James says, the solid food. So we saw that there's different types of food. The word is different types of food. There's the milk of the word. And we discovered that what the milk of the word is the, is the part of the word, the good news, that's easy to receive, just like milk is easy to swallow. But solid food requires something where we put work into it. We have to chew it. We have to swallow it. We have to, the, the digestive process requires more of us. Not only that, there's some solid food that's good for us that doesn't taste good to us. So we've got to eat some things then we may not want to eat, but we eat them because they're good for us. We discovered that the milk of the Word is the parts of the Word that are easy to receive, like God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All the blessings of God, all the wonderful provision of God, the love of God, all those things are wonderful. They're important. They're the basic part of the, of the Word. You don't stop drinking milk just because you've gotten older. But in order to grow and mature, you've got to start eating things beyond just milk. And so we discover there's other food the Word of God consists of like things God requires of us. This is my commandment, that you love one another. I like reading about how much God loves me, but there are times I don't want to read that i got to love you. <laughs> and there may be times you don't want to hear you got to love me. And there may be people that you can think of right now that you either live with or work with that you don't want to love either. But it's a commandment. Commandments aren't easy to swallow. Suggestions are. But as you grow and mature, you need the, need the solid food of the Word, the meat of the Word. Because remember, the goal is we're to grow and be like Christ. He didn't just receive the things that were easy to hear. He received the things that were hard to hear. Father, if there's any way, remove this cup from me, that I don't have to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the solid food of the Word, but it's what causes us to mature and to grow. Let's move on then. That's what we talked about before. Then we began to talk. Go to, go to James chapter 1. Then we began to look at the second part of this. It's not enough to take the word. And by the word, wait, eating the word, eating the food, you don't just chew it and spit it out, do you? You don't just drink the milk and then spit it out. No, a baby may do that. But if they do it, you keep giving more milk until they swallow it. Because it doesn't do any good to put it in your mouth. It's only when you swallow it and it gets into your digestive system because it's only when you swallow it and it gets into your digestive system that it becomes part of you. So simply putting the food in your mouth doesn't do... It may taste good and it may temporarily satisfy the longing that you have, but it doesn't produce any change in you. The same is true with the food of the Word of God. It's not enough to read it. Reading it is like putting it in your mouth. You have to chew it and swallow it and digest it. You can't just read your Bible reading in the morning and then check it off and say, I did that. Because what we'll see is you'll forget it. 
You'll remember you read your Bible and you'll feel good about yourself because you read your Bible, but what you read won't do you any good because you didn't swallow it and you didn't digest it. It didn't become part of you. Well, what do I do with the Word so that it becomes part of me? I take what I read in the morning, I take what the Spirit of God quickens to me, and I think about it during the day. I speak it to myself. I Understand this, God showed you something. That's important. That God showed you something personally. We heard a song this morning about, I'd love to write a letter to God. God's written a letter to you personally. Even though it's the same letter to all of us, the Spirit of God in you takes it and quickens to you what He knows you need to hear for that day. So God has personally shown you something. Of course, you've got to open it for Him to do that. Shown you something. Now we need to treasure and value what He's shown us. So I need to think about it. I need to meditate on it. I need to speak it to myself and talk to myself. That word. And that's how you digest it. But then there's another step. It's, it, won't, it, won't, it will only bring health to you. Food only brings health to you, not just what you eat it, but then you have to use it. And that's what we began to look at last week. James chapter 1. It's not enough to take the word into you. It's just like it's not enough to eat the food. You have to exercise it. In other words, you have to do it. James chapter 1. We're going to go... I'm going to go back to the beginning. Um, brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice that does not imply you're going to get one at a time. Why, why are we surprised when we have tribulation, when one of the promises Jesus made is in this world, you will have tribulation? Why are we shocked? The psalm says, many are the afflictions of the world. Why is this happening to me? Because you're in this world. Satan is the god of this world. And he uses the circumstances of this world to get at the word of God in you. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He doesn't care about you. He wants the word that's in you. He wants the word that's in you. And he uses the pressure of the circumstances of this life to try to choke that word out or keep that word out of you. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why are we shocked? But, the rest of the verse says, the Lord delivers them out of them all. So don't get your eye on the affliction. Get your eye on the deliverance. The Bible says, lift up your eyes from which comes your deliverance. Don't walk around with your head down saying, oh, it's me, my life has fallen apart, things are terrible. I mean, I've heard this lately from more and more people and I've been tempted to say it myself, but I refuse to say it because my life is not terrible. I'm a child of the living God. The spirit of the living God lives in me. I have his word and I have a door open in heaven for me when I leave this world. This is the closest thing to hell I'm ever going to know. And if you're in Christ, you belong to him. The same is true of you. Count it all joy, my brethren. So he's talking to Christians. When you fall into or encounter various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience or steadfastness. Now, we just talked out of Ephesians 4 that one of the signs that I need to mature is when those trials and pressures move me. When I let them control God in me. Because they don't control God. God's not moved by your circumstances. Aren't you glad? When you go to God and say, Oh God, you don't know how terrible it is. He doesn't look down Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Wouldn't that be reassuring to hear? He looks at what you're going through and how overwhelmed. He, he sympathizes with it. Because in Hebrews chapter 4 it says he's touched with the feelings of your infirmities. That means your inability 
to produce results on your own. He's touched with that feeling, but he's not moved by them. He has compassion on what you're going through, but he does not moved by what you're going through. And we'll do that sometimes in prayer. We'll tell God why he ought to get us out of it because of how hard it is on us. That doesn't work. What gets you out of it is when you get your eyes on his deliverance and his answer and you get in faith in his word that shows you the way out. But he understands what you're going through and he doesn't want to leave you there, but the way out is not him having feeling sorry for you. He doesn't feel sorry for you. Why would he feel sorry for you when he has the answer? He is the answer. And he's living in you. Why would he feel sorry for you? Because in order to feel sorry for you, he has to admit he's failed. See, when you choose to feel sorry for yourself, you're rejecting God's answer. Because why would you feel sorry if you have the answer? If you suddenly discovered that you were, you were, you, you, you know, you got a bill for $20,000 you weren't expecting to get. Suppose you guaranteed somebody's lonely to fold it on it. You get a notice, you got owe $20,000 by the end of the year, by the end of the month. And there's two days left to go in the month. But you look in your savings account and you've got $300,000 sitting there. You're not going to walk around and say, oh, I've got to pay this bill by the end of the month. Woe is me. You know you have the resource to solve it. So for you to feel sorry for yourself is to deny that there's an answer. You have a choice in every trial whether you're going to feel sorry for yourself because when you do, you shut off the door to God's answer because you can't feel sorry for yourself and receive His deliverance at the same time. You can't do both. And you choose what you get. It's your choice. Jesus over and over again said to people, be it done unto you according to your faith. Not my will, your faith. My will is to deliver you. My will is to bring you out of that situation. My will is to heal you. My will. It's up to you whether you receive that or not. Now there may be things you need to grow and learn and how, but don't say it's God's fault. The trying of your faith produces steadfastness. And we're talking about the fact that one of the signs of immaturity is I'm standing determined to do God's will and something comes along and it blows me off. I get all distracted by it. And so the only way you're going to grow and I'm going to grow and become more steadfast, more mature, is by going through the trial. Because it's by applying my faith against the trial that my faith grows. None of us like trials. But I guarantee you that every significant growth in my life spiritually has happened by having to face something I didn't want to face. So whatever you're facing now is either a weight that you will allow to destroy you or it's an opportunity for you to grow. And you choose which one that is for you. So it's not your wife's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's your choice what you do with that because God's provided a way through this for you. God has provided a way through this for you. All right. If we don't get this done today, that's okay. It's important enough. Verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all only the amount that they absolutely need. Isn't that what it says? Oh, you know, you're right. I didn't clean my glasses this morning. Who gives to all liberally. See, God's not stingy. He's not just doling out the very minimum that you need and you've got to talk him into it and plead with him and give him all the reasons to give you what you need. On the contrary, he's been trying to talk you into coming to him and asking him in faith because he'll give to you generously. 
Now here he's talking about wisdom, but in a minute we're going to see this applies to everything. Who gives to all men liberally. Who gives to how many? All. Does all include you? Does all include you? Does all include you? Say this, all. All. Means me. me. He gives to me. me. Liberally. Abundantly. Me. Me. And he gives without reproach. It will be given to him. But look at the condition. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. I have to doubt it. He said with no doubt. But Pat, one of you is wrong. God would not tell us to not doubt if we couldn't stop doubting. If you couldn't help doubting, then God would be unfair to say, you can be delivered, you just have to be in faith, and you just can't doubt. But, Pastor, but, but God, I, I, I can't help doubting. One of you is not telling the truth. And I can tell you who I'm leaning towards. It may feel like you can't doubt, have to doubt. It may feel as if you can't change, but God's word says you can. And this is what we're talking about this morning. But he must ask in faith without doubting. And look at this. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed By the wind. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Ephesians chapter 4 when it says being tossed around by every wind of doctrine? What happens to a a boat out on the sea when it loses its power? A number of years ago, I've got a boat. I'm just not in the water right now. I had a boat, and we had, for a couple of years, we rented a slip on the Barrington River. And this slip was for somebody that wasn't experienced with boating like me was a real challenge because it was a very narrow opening to get into this lane. And the Barrington River where this was, it was a very swift current and especially when the tide's going out. So I lined the boat up and your very instinct is to go slow so you don't make a mistake. I discovered very quickly the slower that you go, the less control you have. Why? Because it's the water passing over the rudder that gives you the power to change the direction. So what I had to do to control it best was to do what instinctively looked like the stupidest thing to do, which was to go faster than I wanted to go. Because the the faster I went, obviously there was a, a limit to that, the more control that I had. And so, 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 and I forgot what the purpose of the story was. I was back in that boat again. I could, I could feel the wind in my face and my hands gripping around. Toss to and fro. Yeah, I know that's the point, but I had a good point to make out of that story. I better get back into the word. What? Why do you do that to me? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <clears throat> See, it always helps to go back to the word. I was meditating on this verse yesterday, and that's what opened my eyes to see what I want to share with you this point, or begin to share with you. If you take a boat out on the water, especially Narragansett Bay around here, we get winds and things like that and currents, and you just turn it off, it's totally at the mercy of the wind and the tide. It'll blow you on the rocks. You have no control over where it's going. You're at the mercy of other forces that are not going to take you necessarily where you intend to go. And that's the image that James is using here. That's the image that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. That, that, that when, we're, when we're not mature enough in the Word, then what, and understand, you can know the Word and not be mature in it. This is what we're going to see what the difference is. If you can know the Word and not be mature in it, and when, when you need to grow in this area, the sign of that is when the wind and the waves blow you where you do not intend or God does not intend for you to go. You're at the mercy of circumstances, 
not what God's Word says or what you know is right. You may want to do what's right. You may know what's right and purpose to do what's right, and you start out doing what's right, but the devil has a chain on you. And you begin to go down that road and just get off of it, and he goes, oh, you really... He'll let you go long enough so you think you're free, and then go, whoop, and pull you back. And that same situation that's controlled you for years comes up again and yanks you back again, and now you get discouraged and say, I thought I was free. I thought God's Word says I was free, but I guess I'm not. Or it may be just pressure comes against you. It may not be a recurring thing. But whatever it is, it's a pressure, it's a circumstance, it's a wind that's blowing along. And notice what he says. He says, if you, if you doubt, you become double-minded. Double-minded means you are of two different opinions about something. Let not that man think he will receive anything of the Lord being unstable in all his ways. You can be a successful businessman, a successful professional person. You can have a successful family and all the money in the world. But in God's eyes, if you're easily moved by the circumstances, in his eyes, you're unstable. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's a sign that we need to grow and mature. And notice what he says. It's, if, it's, it's, when, we're, it's when we're doubting and we're not in faith. And now James is going to begin to talk about how to do this. Let's go over. Uh, let's go over to uh, verse um, eighteen. Of his own authority, he brought us forth by what the word of truth. This is like we saw in Peter that we be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak. And slow to wrath. We spent some time on that last week. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the excess of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, we know he's talking to sage people because he starts out talking to brethren. We see up here in verse 18 that he says, we were brought forth by the word of truth. So he's talking to people who are born again. So he's not talking about now how you're born again. It's the same thing Peter said. We're born again by the incorruptible seed, the word of God that endures forever. But that's how we then, that we're born as a baby. Now we need to grow. And we grow by receiving that same word. We grow by receiving. So, and James is here saying the same thing. You were born again by that word of God that you heard and you believed. And when you heard and you believed it, then you acted on it because you made a confession of your faith. Romans chapter 10. You believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you declared with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And when you did that, you were born again. God's spirit came inside of you, birthed his nature inside of you. You became a child of God. But now that you're a child of God, you're a baby in Christ. Again, you may be 60 years old in your body and you have to grow and mature. And the way you grow and mature is through the same word. But it's not enough to just receive the word. This is what James is now going to tell us. The overflow of wickedness, verse 21, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I went through that to show you can see he's not just talking about being born again because salvation is so much more than just coming into the kingdom of God. It's the fullness of all that God has for you. It's overcoming. It's a restoring of your soul, Psalm 23 talks about. It's being made whole, spirit, soul, and body. It's completeness because remember the goal is we grow and mature into the full image of Christ. Spirit, soul, and body, ultimately body. So wherever you have areas in your life where you need to grow, salvation includes that growth that is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the word that's able. Oh, this is good. The word is able to save your soul. The word is able. Just like the seed planted in the seed on your shelf, is able to produce tomatoes. It's able to. But able doesn't produce tomatoes. The Word of God does not save your soul. It's capable of redeeming you, delivering you, and maturing. It's capable of it, but it won't do it by itself, just like that seed on the shelf won't do it. That Word in your Bible won't do it. 
is capable, but something else has to take place before that word will save your soul, will bring that full redemption. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's not just the case of whether I'm going to grow or mature, but what happened? Well, let's go on and read and I'll explain to you. Go back to this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, that includes hearing like you're doing now or reading it, he is like a man. So if you're a hearer but you don't act on it, you're like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But if he, Now let's stop there. Because notice he said at the end of verse 22, because when you hear the word, when you read the word, when you don't do it, don't act on what you've heard, you deceive yourself. And I was meditating on that yesterday. I mean, to me that's one of, been one of the more startling verses in the Bible I, because it's, it's a lot of things are out there trying to deceive you, both in the natural world and spiritually. So it's one thing if you make a mistake and fall prey to some deception that you didn't recognize. That's one thing. It's another thing if you do it to yourself. You can't blame anybody then. You deceived yourself. And I was thinking about this yesterday. How does that apply here in this setting? And here's how it applies. Because I think because I'm reading the Word. I think because I come to church and I hear the Word of God. I think that being a hearer of the Word of God is going to change me. That's like being the possessor of tomato seeds will give you tomatoes. So here's how we act it out. We go to church, which is we're supposed to do, obviously. We read the Bible, which we're supposed to do. I may think about the Bible. I may talk about the Bible. But I have no intention of doing it. Oh, I have some general intention. By the, word, by the way, the Greek word for hear that's used most commonly is the word akuo, A-K-U-O. And it means to listen with the intent of obeying. It does not mean to listen only. So James is saying, when all I do, see, it's not, see, see, when, when, when you come to church, when you pick your Bible up, and when I come to church, and when I pick my Bible up, somewhere down inside, I have already set a purpose of why I'm here. You may not be conscious of it. It may be so you feel better about yourself today. I went to church. It may be because you're here, because you're desperate, you need to hear God speak to you. That's a reason to come. Whatever your motive is for coming to church, whatever your motive is when you pick up your Bible, and it can change from day to day, will determine what you get. Because you'll get what you're after. You'll get, you'll receive what you're after. And James is saying here that when I, res- when I read the word, when I hear the word, but I don't do it with the intention of applying it in my life, then I deceive myself. Here's how I deceive myself. I think I'm fine. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm listening to tapes. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. How come things aren't changing in my life? How come these situations overcome me and overwhelm me? That's exactly where the devil wants you. He wants you to think you're doing everything you're supposed to do, everything you need to do, and yet it's not working for you because then you'll be discouraged. You'll begin to doubt God. Just like the disciples on the back of the boat says, are you asleep because you don't care about us while we're sinking? So when we read the word, hear the word, but don't do it with the intention and purpose of acting on that word, we will deceive ourselves because we'll think everything's okay from our end. It must be God's fault or the word fault. The word failed. But the word we've just seen in James, in, in Peter, says the word of God endures forever. Your flesh will fall off, rot and fall away. Mine will. But the word of God Everything you accomplish in this world will fall away except things you do for people. But the Word of God never changes. It endures forever. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only because when you do the Word and don't hear it, when you hear the Word and don't do it, you deceive yourself into thinking, I'm okay, I've done what I'm supposed to do. It's enough. God wants to help us. He wants to help you this morning. 
These are things I've had to begin to really look back and examine myself on. And when I look back and examine myself, I was not happy in what I saw. I found myself struggling with some things. And it wasn't sin. I was just struggling with some issues and being worn down by them. And they just seemed to keep coming back up and buffeting me and buffeting me and buffeting me. I was getting tired by them. And finally, God opened my eyes and I began to see it's because I was not applying my faith against them. I was just taking them and trying to endure. My goal was to endure and get by and not overcome. But my Bible tells me in Revelation over and over again, it's to he that not endures, but to he that overcomes. We're more than conquerors, Romans 8 says, through Christ who, who, who saved us. We're more than conquerors. We're to conquer and overcome. And I found myself just being buffeted by things. I was allowing it to happen. I was not applying my faith against it. And the result is I had allowed my faith to become weak. And it took a jolt to wake me up and face where I was and begin to start building my faith up again and begin to apply my faith. Let's go to um, chapter 2. What does a pro- verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, we've talked about this before. He's not teaching here that we're saved by our works. There's too much of the Bible, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and most of the book of Hebrews, is establishing that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But what James is going to say here is if that's real faith, then we're going to begin to act like we're saved. We're going to begin to act as if we are children of God. We're going to begin to act with a confidence towards Him. We're going to begin to act as if God's word about us is really true. So there ought to be some change that begins to show up in our lives. So our, our, our confidence before God is not based on our works, on our deeds. Our confidence before God is based on faith in what Christ did for me on that cross 2,000 years ago. But because I believe His blood has washed me and that I can stand before God this morning clean and pure in His eyes, because of that I will come to Him with a confidence and a boldness because I believe what His Word says about what Christ did for me. So that begins to show up in how I relate to God. It begins to show up in how I relate to you. Because that means the love of God for you has been put in my heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. So therefore I can love people that I may not want to love. I'm not thinking of you. Or I may not, I may not, I may not think I can love. I can love them. Because the Word says His love for them is in my heart. I don't feel it, but faith and feelings are the opposite of each other. Getting ahead of myself here. So now he uses this example that we can all understand. It's a natural example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart, be at peace, be warm, be filled, and you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what profit is that? In other words... Somebody comes up to you and they're obviously, you know, they don't have good clothes on their back and they're starving and you've got, you know, you've got a suitcase with you, with, you know, you've got clothes with you and you've got a lunch. In other words, you have the means to, to help them and you just say words, but you have the ability to actually meet that need, to do something that helps them. What good, does your, what good do your words make? So in the same thing, he's saying, what good do your words about what you believe mean if there's not some actions behind them to prove that that's really what you believe. Verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have works or corresponding actions, there's a better way to put it, is dead. If someone says to you, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith 
by my works. You believe there's one God. You do well, but even the demons believe. They just don't obey. They believe the word. The demons believe the word more than many Christians believe the word. They believe God exists. They've seen him. They tremble, which I said to you last week is more than most Christians do. But they don't act on what they believe. They don't obey it. So believing is not enough. It's what you do with what you believe. Do you not know, O foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead or useless? This is so good. 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works, that by works his faith was made complete. Referring to the story of Abraham, of course. Abraham, we've talked about before. God spoke to Abraham. This was God's idea, not Abraham's idea. Abraham was 75 years old. His wife was 65 years old, and she was barren. And Abraham said to God, God approached him in, in, in Genesis 12 and said, I want to enter a blood covenant with you. And Abraham's first reaction is, what do I get out of this? What I want is a son, and I don't have a son right now. And God's answer was to take him out and let him see the scars of the sky and say to him, that's the number of your descendants that are going to be. You're going to be the father of many nations. And he didn't have the first child. And he had to trust God. And God had to take him through a series of exercises because he didn't learn how to trust God right away. But when he got into faith, nine months later, Isaac is born. So God's made clear to him, this is the son that I've, made, I've called you to believe me for. And you finally believed me, and now I produced what I said I was going to produce. And now Isaac grows up to be a young man, and now God speaks to him again and says, I want you to take that son, your only son, the one that I had you believing for, and I want you to go out to a place I'm going to tell you to and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham gets early the next morning, takes his son, takes the wood for the sacrifice, takes some servants with him, and they go to Mount Moriah. And God, he leaves the servants there, and the words he says to his servants are so powerful, the words he said. He said, the son... Son and I are going up to worship God and we will return to you. Because see, he was still believing that through this boy, he was going to be the father of many nations. Gets up on the mountain, lays his son on the altar, takes the knife up, to, goes to bring it down and the angel of God says, stop, now I know that you truly reverence me because you were going to do what I said to do. The Bible tells us that Abraham was not that he was willing to make this tremendous sacrifice. That's not the lesson here. The lesson here is the Bible tells us that he still believed that first promise. He believed God's word. And it says that he believed that if necessary, God would have raised him from the dead to give him back because it's through that boy God's make said that you will be the father of many nations. So here you have a case where it's not some outside circumstances come to challenge the word that he has. Here it's not some symptom in his body. Here it's, it's God himself has told him something to do that looks contrary to a promise that God made him. But he had grown to learn to trust God's word so much that whatever God told him, he obeyed Instantly. And what James is saying is when he acted on that word, the fullness of the faith in him now matured because he acted on it. It's like taking the seed of the word and you sow it in the ground. When you act on that word, you're watering and fertilizing the seed and it will produce what God said. But it's your choice and my choice what I do with that word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we will probably not finish this today, but we'll start this part of it. We're talking about maturing so that circumstances don't move us easily. And the way we do that is we have to We have to make his word become part of us and then we have to act on that word. Verse 21, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said to the disciples, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it's not just what we say, it's what we do. Many will say to me in that day, which means there will be a day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice why. It's not because of the deeds they did or didn't do. You who practice lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness means when I do what I want to do. See, you can come to church. You can be saved. You can be reading your Bible every day. But if you read your Bible and then go do what you want to do, not what it says to do, that's lawlessness, isn't it? When I read it, but it has no... What, ask yourself this question. Don't answer it now. But ask yourself this question. What place does God's Word have in my life? Is it a comfort to me? Of course it's a comfort. But is that its place? Is that all I use it for, to comfort me? Does it encourage me? Yes, it's full of encouragement. Is that all I use it for, to encourage me? Does it give me wisdom and understanding? And it does have wisdom and understanding. It is the wisdom of God. But is that all I use it for, wisdom and understanding and comfort? Then if that's the case, listen carefully to me, because I'm talking to me as well as you. Then I'm using God's word for my purposes. So the place it has in my life is a resource. And it is a resource, but it's more than that. But if that's all I do, I'm using that word as a resource to help me out so that I can do what I want and need to do. That means that word is not yet the authority in my life. That whatever that word says, that's what I do. Now let's go and read down. Don't get condemned because we're talking about growing up. Your child, so you're his child, but now he wants us to grow up. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will be likened to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came. Sound like your life right now? The rains descended, the floods came. See, the circumstances of life came against this man. And what did they come against him to do? To move him. But was he moved? No. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house. But it did not fall. Why? For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, they hear them, but they do not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains descended and the floods came and the bills arrived and the symptoms showed up and the doctor and the mother-in-law arrived and all the news, the bad news happened and they beat on that house and it fell and great was it fall. What's the difference in the two houses? It's what they were built on. We have this image, well, if I build my life on the Word of God, that's trite. But he's saying here, the way you build your life on the Word of God is you hear it, and then you apply it in your life. To hear it and not apply it won't cause your life to be established on something solid. Your life is not established on... Establishing your life on reading the Word is not establishing your life on the Word because that Word's not getting in you. Oh, you're reading it. It's like eating food and spitting it out. It won't do you any good unless you consume it and then you exercise or you use it. Now, as I was meditating on this and seeing how it applies... What is the Word of God that we need to do? Well, there's all kinds of things in there. There are commandments in there, which is usually where I've taught along these lines. But where God's been dealing with me this lately is there are other things in the Word of God. 
God's made certain promises. He says certain things about my life. One of the things he says is, Jesus bore my sicknesses and carried my pains, and by his stripes I'm healed. That's God's word. Now I get a symptom in my body. What do I do with that? The symptom's telling me I'm sick, and I am. I go to the doctor. He can see the symptom. He can check me out. They may be able to put me on some kind of scope or you know, scan that they do now, and they say, yep, that's there. It's really there. I'm not denying it's there, but God has something to say about it. You, you, you face the possibility of losing your job, and you panic again. A circumstance comes along, and it's now shaking you. You're beginning to roll with this. You know, and then another one comes up, and another one comes up. And what do you do then? Do you go to God's Word and pull the promises out and, and read them for comfort? That's good. But you don't need just comfort. God's Word has been given to you to get you through it and out of it. Understand this. The devils opposed the Word of God from the beginning. It only took two chapters for him to do it. God said to Abe, to Adam, do not eat of the tree, of every other tree in the garden you may eat of freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. When Satan approaches Eve, what is the first words out of his mouth? Has God said? He came to challenge God's word to her. And she made the choice to listen to what he said in questioning God's word. And when she did that, she went from standing on God's word by listening it and doing it to beginning to stand partially on what the reasoning that the devil was bringing to her. And now she's going back and forth, trying to decide whether to eat that fruit or not. She's become double-minded, unstable. And his scheme is the same today. So whatever the pressure in your life right now is, there is an answer in God's word. And you have to choose which you're going to believe. The Word of God or the circumstances in your life. The circumstances, are we don't deny that they're there. Jesus didn't deny that the storm was there. He didn't get up on the battleship and say, there's no storm. I don't know what you guys are talking about. There's no storm here. We're in faith here. There's no storm there. He recognized the storm, but he had authority over the storm. And he spoke to it, and the storm had to obey him. So I don't know what the promise you got to, that's your job is to get into the book and find the promises for yourself. We've got all kinds of books in the bookstore to help you, but there's no substitute for you and your Bible having a time together where you find out what's in God's word about your circumstances. Hebrews chapter 13 says, I think it's around verse 5, God will not abandon you. If you look in the Amplified, it's wonderful. He says, never, 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 never will he leave you cast down and utterly forsaken. Talking about money there. I've stood on that and I've stood on that and I've stood on that through difficult trials. I've taken God's word and I've put it back in his face and argued it to him. And I've watched God come through. Watched God come through. And I'm coming to the place where I've decided God's word is more real to me than those circumstances. I'm not denying them, but God's word is more real to me. So now I speak his word. I think his word. And when that circumstance raises its ugly head and tries to tell me what it's going to do to me, I answer it with God's word. I, I said, I know you're there, but here's what God says. And we'll get into this next time. What did Jesus do when the devil came at him? How did he handle it? Did he reason with the devil? No, he did what Eve should have done. He said, it is written. He took God's word and he shoved it back in the devil's face, in the face of the circumstances. He, says, he wasn't denying that the devil was real, that was there. 
He said, I don't care what you say. This is what my father said. And that ends it. And the devil left him for a season. That's what you need to do. That's how you grow. The trying of your faith is intended. God didn't bring the trial to you, but he'll use it. It's intended for you to develop a steadfastness so that as you go out to do God's will, the devil can't just pull a chain, throw something at you and distract you and pull you off course so that no matter whether the winds blow or come or the rain comes, your house will stand because you are committed to do God's will. That is a mature Christian. No longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the crafty and deceitful teachings of men. Not like a boat blown around by the wind, unstable in all our ways, but a man and woman of God that stands in the storms of life because they don't stand in their own strength. They stand on God's word because they take God's word and begin to apply it in that circumstances. And it won't be easy. It's not easy. And you'll slip and you'll fall. But you've got to make a commitment to get back up and do it again. To get back up and do it again. Get back up. Abraham slipped and fell. Paul slipped and fell. But they got back up and did it again. They got back. When you learn to walk, what happened? You slip and fall. But you get back up and they do it again. You get back up and you do it again. You get back up and you do it again. Because God's word will not fail. Amen.